Chapter 3 of The Daughter of a Magnate by Frank Spearman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Chapter 3 Into the Mountains. You put me in an awkward position, muttered Bucks, looking out of the window. But it is grace itself compared with the position I should be in now among the Pittsburghers, objected Glover, shifting his legs again. If you won't go, I must, that's all, continued the general manager. I can't send Tom, Dick, or Harry with these people, Abe. Gentlemen must be entertained as such. On the hunting, do the best you can. They want chiefly to see the country, and I can't have them put through it on a tourist basis. I want them to see things globetrotters don't see, and can't see, without someone like you. You ought to do that much for our president. Henry S. Brock is not only a national man and a big one in the new railroad game, but besides being the owner of this whole system, he's my best friend. We set at Telegraph Keys together a long time before he was rated at $60 million. I care nothing for the party, except that it includes his own family and is made up of his friends and associates, and he looks to me here as I should look to him in the East were circumstances reversed. Bucks paused. Glover stared a moment. If you put it in that way, let us drop it, said he at last. I will go. The blunder was not a life-and-death matter. In the mountains where we don't see one woman a year, it might happen that any man expecting one young lady should mistake another for her. Miss Brock is full of mischief, and the temptation to her to let you deceive yourself was too great, that's all. If I could go without sacrificing the interest of all of us in the reorganization, I shouldn't ask you to go. Let it pass. The day had been planned for the little reception to the visitors. The arrival of two more private cars had added the directors, the hunting party, and more women to the company. The women were to drive during the day, and the men had arranged to inspect the roundhouse, the shops, and the division terminals, and to meet the heads of the operating department. In the evening, the railroad men were to call on their guests at the train. This was what Glover had hoped he should escape, until Buck's arriving in the morning asked him not only to attend the reception, but to pilot Mr. Brock's own party through a long mountain trip. To consent to the former request, after agreeing to the latter, was of slight consequence. In the evening the special train, twinkling across the yard, looked as pretty as a dream. The luxury of the appointments, subdued by softened lights, and the simple hospitality of the Pittsburghers, those people who understand so well how to charm and bow to repel, was a new note to the mountain men. If self-consciousness was felt by the least of them at the door, it could hardly pass Mr. Brock within. His cordiality was genuine. Following Bucks came some of his mountain staff, whom he introduced to the men whose interests they now represented. Morris Blood, the superintendent, was among those he brought forward, and he presented him as a young railroad man and a rising one. 
glover followed because he was never very far from the mountain superintendent and the general manager when the two were in sight for glover there was an uncomfortable moment prospect and it came almost at once mr brock in meeting him as the chief of construction who was to take the party on the mountain trip left his place and took him with blood back to his own car to be introduced to his sister mrs whitney the younger miss brock marie the invalid a sweet-faced girl rose to meet the two men mrs whitney introduced them to miss donner at the table gertrude brock was watching a waiter from the dining car who was placing a coffee urn she turned to meet the young men that were coming forward with her father and glover thought the awful moment was upon him yet it happened that he was never to be introduced to gertrude brock marie was already engaging him where he stood with gentle questions and to catch them he had to bend above her when the waiter went away morris blood was helping gertrude brock to complete her arrangements others came up the moment passed but Glover was conscious all the time of this graceful girl who was so frankly cordial to those near her and so oblivious of him. He heard her laughing voice in her conversation with his friends and noted in the utterance of her sister and her aunt the same unusual inflections that he had first heard from her in his office. To his surprise, these eastern women were very easy to talk to. They asked about the mountains, and as their train conductor had long ago hinted, when himself apologizing for mountain stories, well told but told at second hand, Glover knew the mountains. Discussing afterward the man that was to plan the summer trip for them, Louise Donner wished it might have been the superintendent because he was a Boston Tech man. Oh, but I think Mr. Glover's going to be interesting, declared Mrs. Whitney. He draws, and I like that sort of men. There's always something more to what they say after you think they're done, don't you know? He drank two cups of coffee, didn't he, Gertrude? Didn't you like him? The tall one? I didn't notice. He's amazingly homely, isn't he? "'Don't abuse him, for he is delightful,' interposed Marie. "'I accused him right soon of being a Southerner,' Mrs. Whitney went on. "'He admitted he was a Missourian. "'When I confessed I liked his drawl, "'he told me I ought to hear his brother, a lawyer, who stutters. "'Mr. Glover says he wins all his cases through sympathy. "'He stumbles along until everyone is absolutely convinced "'that the poor fellow—' would have a perfectly splendid case if he could only stammer through it. Then, of course, he gets the verdict. The party had not completed the first day out of Medicine Bend under Glover's care before they realized that Mrs. Whitney was right. Glover could talk, and he could listen. With the men, it was mining or railroading or shooting. If things lagged with the ladies, he had landmarks or scenery, or early-day stories. With Mrs. Whitney, he could, in extremity, discuss St. Louis. Marie Brock he could please by placing her in marvelous spots for sketching. As for Gertrude and Louise Donner, the men of their own party left them with no dull moments. 
The first week took the party north into the park country. Two days of the time on horses, partly, put everyone in love with the Rockies. On Saturday they reached the main line again, and at Sleepy Cat, Superintendent Blood joined the party for the desert run to the Hart Mountains. Glover already felt the fatigue of the unusual week, nor could any ingenuity make the desert interesting to strenuous people. Its beauties are contemplative rather than pungent, and the travelers were frankly advised to fall back on books and ping-pong. Crawling across an interminable alkali basin in the late afternoon, their train was laid out a long time by a freight wreck. Weary of the car, Gertrude Brock, after the sun had declined, was walking alone down the track when Glover came in sight. She started for the train, but Glover easily overtook her. Since he had joined the party, they had not exchanged one word. "'I wonder whether you have ever seen anything like these, Miss Brock?' he asked, coming up to her. She turned. He had a handful of small, long-stemmed flowers of an exquisite blue. "'How beautiful!' she exclaimed, moved by surprise. "'What are they?' "'Desert flowers. Such a blue!' You expressed a regret this morning. Oh, you heard. I overheard. What are they called? I haven't an idea. But once in the Sioux country, they were at the car step. Marie, see here, she called to her sister within. Won't you take them? asked Glover. No, no, I, with an apology for my, Marie, dear, do look here. Stupidity the other day. "'How shall I ever reach that step?' she exclaimed, breaking in upon her own words and obstinately buffeting his own, as she gazed with more than necessary dismay at the high vestibule tread. "'Would you hold the flowers a moment?' he asked. Her sister appeared at the door. "'So I may help you?' continued the patient railroad man. "'See, Marie, these dear flowers!' Marie clapped her hands as she ran forward. He held the flowers up. Are they for me? she cried. Will you take them? he asked as she bent over the guardrail. Oh, gladly. He turned instantly, but Gertrude had gained the step. Thank you, thank you, exclaimed Marie. What is their name, Mr. Glover? I don't know any name for them except an Indian name. The Sioux up in their country call them Sky Eyes. Sky Eyes, isn't that dear? Sky Eyes. You're heated, continued Marie, looking at him. You've walked a long way. Where in all this desolate, desolate country could you find flowers such as these? Back a little way in a canyon. Are there many in a desert like this? I know of none, at least within many miles, yet there may be others in nearby hiding places. The desert is full of surprises. You're so warm. Are you coming up to sit down while I get a bowl? I will go forward, thank you, and see when we are to get away. Your sister, he added, looking evenly at Marie as Gertrude stood beside him, asked this morning why there were no flowers in this country. 
and while we were delayed I happened to recollect that canyon and the sky eyes. I think you're stupid man, the most interesting we've met since we left home, Gertrude, remarked Marie at her embroidery after dinner. I told you he would be, said Mrs. Whitney, suppressing a yawn. Gertrude was playing ping-pong with Dr. Lanning. But isn't he homely, she exclaimed, sending a cut ball into the doctor's watch-chain. Louise returned soon with Alan Harrison from the forward car. The program for the evening is arranged, she announced, and it's fine. We're to have a big campfire over near that butte, right out under the stars. And Mr. Blood is going to tell a story, and while he's telling it, Mr. Glover, Oh, drop your ping-pong, won't you, and listen, has promised to make taffy, and we are to pull it. Won't that be jolly? and then the coyotes are to howl. A little later all left the car together. Above the copper edge of the desert ranges the moon was rising full, and it brought the nearer buttes up across the stretches of the night like sentinels. In the sky a multitude of stars trembled, and wind, springing from the south, fanned the fire growing on the plateau just off the right-of-way. The party disposed themselves in camp chairs and on ties about the big fire. Near at hand, Glover, who already had a friend in Clem the cook, was feeding chips into the little blaze under the kettle, slung with his taffy mixture, which the women in turn inspected, asked questions about, and commented skeptically upon. Dr. Lanning brought his banjo, and when the party had settled low about the fire, it helped to keep alive the talk. Every few minutes the taffy and the coyotes were demanded in turn, and Glover was kept busy apologizing for the absence of the wolves and the slowness of his kettle, under which he fed the small chips regularly. As the night air grew sharper, more raps were called for. When Dr. Lanning and Mrs. Whitney started after them, they asked Gertrude what they should bring her, but she said she needed nothing. As she sat, she could see Glover, her sister Marie on a stool beside him, watching the boiling taffy, with one foot doubled under him for a seat and an elbow supported on his knee, he steadied himself like a camp cook behind his modest fire. But even as he crouched, the blaze threw him up astonishingly tall. Heedless of the chatter around the big fire, the man whose business was to bridle rivers, fight snowslides, raise granite hills, and dispute for their dizzy passes with the bighorn and the bear, bent patiently above his pot of molasses, a coaxing stick in one hand and a careful chip in the other. "'Where, pray, Mr. Glover, did you learn that?' demanded Marie Brock. He had been explaining the chemical changes that follow each stage of the boiling in sugar. I learned the taffy business from the old Negro mammy that raised me down on the Mississippi, Aunt Chloe. She taught me everything I know, except mathematics, and mathematics I don't know anyway. Mrs. Whitney was distributing the wraps. I would have brought your new market if I could have found it, Gertrude. Her new market? exclaimed Alan Harrison. 
Gertrude hasn't told you the new market story, eh? She threw it over a tramp asleep in the rain down at the Spiderwater Bridge. What? And was going to disown me because I wouldn't give up my overcoat for tarpaulin. Gertrude Brock, exclaimed Mrs. Whitney. You're a new market. Then you deserve to freeze, she declared, settling under her fur cape. What will she do next? Now, Mr. Blood, we're all here. What about that story? Morris Blood turned. Glover, Marie Brock watching, tested the foaming candy. Dr. Lanning, on a cushion, strummed his banjo. In front of Gertrude, Harrison, inhaling a cigarette, stretched before the fire. Declining a stool, Gertrude was sitting on a chair of ties. One, projecting at her side, made a rest for her elbow, and she reclined her head upon her hand as she watched the flames leap. The incident Miss Donner asked about occurred when I was dispatching, began the superintendent. Oh, are you a dispatcher, too? asked Louise, clasping her hands upon her knee as she leaned forward. They would hardly trust me with the train sheet now. Now, this was some time ago. End of chapter 3